Now, I, just before I begin my sermon proper, I would like to quash a rumor that's running around this place. And that rumor is that the reason I wasn't here last Sunday was because of Manchester City's defeat in the Champions League final. Uh, no, that was just good timing. We were on holiday, uh, and that's given me a week, a whole week to lick my wounds. And I will, I will say I haven't licked them all yet. Uh, but uh, thanks for your gentleness in dealing with me. Uh, in the 1930s and 40s, a young man came to prominence in Germany, in the midst of Nazi Germany. Now, he was from an aristocratic background. His family was very wealthy. They were a series, really, of academics. Father was a very well-known a psychiatrist, and uh, his family were famous. He himself was actually, amongst other things, a concert-level pianist. Very, very gifted young man. And, and in his teens, just quite out of nowhere, he developed an interest in theology, in the study of God, in learning about God. And this was a surprise to his family, but they sort of went with it. It's not exactly what they expected for him. But uh, because of this interest, he started reading theology at university, and he developed a real flair for it, quite a taste for it. In fact, he was one of those people who was very, very gifted. So it, by the age of 21, he'd already completed his PhD. And he was later ordained a Lutheran pastor. And he got on with life and ministry. He moved about the place. He spent some time in the UK. He spent some time in Barcelona. He was a youth pastor and various other things as well. And, and he might have become a truly great theologian. He might have been an average one. We'll never know. But what we do know is that when the Nazis rose to power, he was one of the only people in the church in Germany at that time who saw what was going on, who saw the immense threat that Hitler and the Nazis posed, and who opposed it from the earliest days. And as a result of his opposition, he was eventually imprisoned uh, for his part in a plot on Hitler's life, a failed plot, clearly, on Hitler's life. And as the war came to an end, in the last two weeks of the war, he was hung in Flossenburg uh, by the German state, days, weeks, two weeks before the war, the war ended. He was a modern martyr of sorts. And actually, if you go to Westminster Abbey, there's uh, one of the uh, doorways has, uh, I think it's 10 or something, 20th century martyrs in this man, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was one of them. He lived in a time where the church was in exile. Church was pushed, the true church at least, was pushed outside of the margins. It was difficult to be a Christ follower in those days. And many people have heard of Bonhoeffer. You, some of you will have heard of him, many of you perhaps. But sadly, and interestingly, far fewer will have heard of a man called Eberhard Bethke. Bethke was Bonhoeffer's best friend. And in truth, if it wasn't for Bethke, we really wouldn't know nearly as much about Bonhoeffer as we do. The two men met in 1935 in a, a Bible school that Bonhoeffer was setting up for the, what's known as the Confessing Church, the Christians who were actually staying faithful to Jesus and not falling under Hitler. And they set this, this seminary up, this Bible training school to, to train pastors. And Bonhoeffer and Bethke met and they became firm friends. And uh, Bethke eventually married Bonhoeffer's niece, Renata, and their first child they named Dietrich. 
And the seminary they founded was closed in 1937 by the Gestapo. And when Bonhoeffer was arrested in 1943, they kept in touch by smuggled letters. Smuggled in and out of the prison, they, uh, they kept in touch. And those letters became the body of uh, what we now have as letters and papers from prison. And these letters themselves made a tremendous impact on theology, on people's understanding of who God is. Toward the end of Bonhoeffer's life, Bethke remained his faithful friend. He stood by Bonhoeffer as he neared his death. He could say anything to Bethke. He was a place he could discuss lofty ideals and also just the fabric of day-to-day life. He could uh, share with Bethke his, his brilliant thoughts and his deep, deepest trauma, his loneliness, his unbelief even. Bethke was Bonhoeffer's confessor. He was his encourager. Yeah, Bonhoeffer was in the cell with Jesus. We know that. Jesus was with him, and yet at times he doubted Jesus' presence. But he knew Bethke was praying for him. He knew he was with him. Bethke at times was Christ to him. What did that friendship mean for Bonhoeffer in those days? We can only guess, but surely it, it gave him immeasurable comfort. Alone in his prison cell, he was comforted not only with Christ's presence, but with the knowledge that he had a friend, a real friend. And we've been in a series in the book of Daniel, which as I announced at the beginning, will go on for as long as it goes on. (laughs) We know not yet how long. But we've been looking, I've been saying that one of the best ways, I think, to understand what it means to be a Christian in these days, to be somebody who's following Jesus, is to to understand ourselves as, as those who live in exile as those who are living in a culture that's no longer uh, amenable necessarily to radical Christian discipleship, to really following Jesus. And and I said all along, I'm not complaining about that. That's not something we complain about. It's something we need to recognize so that we can begin to reframe what it means to thrive as somebody that really wants to follow Jesus in these days. In other words, the culture isn't just going to carry us along any longer in a, a vague direction towards Jesus. And so the question for Christians, that at least followers of Jesus should be asking today, is how are we going to thrive in these days? What is it that we need to know? How is it that we need to live? And today we're going to see that the answer to that question has a whole lot to do with friendship. The big picture for those who are joining us maybe this week at home or in the room for the first time, the big picture uh, in this Daniel's story so far, we're only actually in chapter 3, after all these weeks, but the big picture is that Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who I think have some of the finest names in the whole of the Bible, uh, they have been taken from Judah, from Jerusalem, and ripped out of their home and taken into exile. They're living away from family, away from friends, away from creaturely comforts, away from their nest heating, uh, which they can remotely control from a distance. They don't have their own pots and pans. They don't have their own food. They don't have anything. They're living in exile. And they're living under tremendous pressure, the pressure to conform. Or the word that we used when we talked about this was the pressure to assimilate, the pressure to fold, peer pressure, if you like, but in a sort of much bigger uh, sense. The culture of Babylon is intent on making them look and smell and act and behave like Babylon. 
And yet, as we've seen again and again in these first few chapters, somehow these disciples of God, these followers of Yahweh, somehow they've managed to push against that. They've managed to resist it. And they're still faithful to God in the midst of corrupt Babylon. And as George showed us last week, now the pressure is really on. Because uh, the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, who again is vying for the title of best biblical name with Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, he set up an, a, a, a god, an idol, and he's expecting everybody to bow down to it. And the threat is there that if they don't, they will lose their lives. Now, uh, Nebuchadnezzar was a, a military man, so that he's like, no compromises. And what's the laws made? It's made. There's no going back on that law. This is strong pressure. I mean, this is, you know, cancel culture compared to this. Nothing. This is real, real pressure. But look at the response that these men come up with. Look at their attitude. Verses 16 to 18, we read, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to present a defense to you in this matter. In other words, we, we see the first thing we see about the response is that it's non-anxious. They're not anxious about uh, Nebuchadnezzar. They're not anxious about the response. They're not anxious about uh, the threat on their life. They are completely at peace. Extraordinary, actually. Uh, The second thing is, as well as it being non-anxious, we see that their response is totally trusting. They say, if our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire and out of your hand, O king, there's still respect there, let him deliver us. In other words, this is a, a trusting their destiny to God and God alone. They're not anxious, they're totally trusting. But listen to this, this is cool. They're completely defiant. I love this. I love a bit of this. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods and we will not worship the golden statue that you've set up. Now, I'm going to get into this in detail. George has already led us through this part. But... Listen to that defiance. There's this uh, appropriate level of respect. And they're just like, no, here is our line in the sand. This far, but no further. We will give you honor as you are due honor, but we will not worship your statue. And if I was going to describe those uh, three attitudes, this non-anxious presence, this totally trusting attitude, this complete defiance, I think the word I would use to describe this would be confidence. These men together as they face the king, they they stand before the king with confidence. They have a deep confidence. They're completely confident. That'd be the one word I'd choose. And there is a clue in that word. There is a clue. That word, uh, if you look at that word, you can find two other words. Con, fide. Con, with, together. Fide, faith. Confidence is is faith together, faith that we have together. Now these men, these young men, as I said, when they went to Babylon, they're probably in their teens, they're 13 to 16 or so. They've lived their lives together. They've ate together, they've slept together, they've wept together, they've laughed together. They've developed 
we assume, I mean, always mentioned in this book in the same breath. You know, they're like joined at the hip. They've developed what you might call thick relationships. Not thin relationship, not sort of shallow, skin deep, acquaintance relationship, but they're, they're sort of, they're like, they are a band of brothers. You know, they are thick as thieves. They have a thick relationship. And what I want to say today is that it is this kind of friendship that makes faith possible. When situations are thin, it's thick relationship that carries us through. This kind of friendship makes this kind of faith, confident faith, possible. You know, this kind of friendship has made my faith possible. I, like any of you, will have had, I have had times of just challenge and, uh, and uh, times of feeling just overwhelmed. I mean, this <laughs> file the whole of the last 18 months under times I have felt overwhelmed. There have been other times, in this last 18 months, I've lent on so many of you, and you will have lent on others in this church family. There was a particular time in my early 20s, though, where honestly I felt like my, uh, my life was just shipwrecked. So many of the structures and things that had kept me stable to that point just weren't working. And one of those, honestly, was faith. It was my understanding of myself and my understanding of God. And, and in those times, there were, three, there were so many people who helped me, uh, three in particular, I can't even speak about them without being emotional because the friendship they offered me was so precious. I think of Don, a friend, a mentor, now in his 80s, 40 plus years older than me, but somebody who just stuck with me through thick and thin. I think of Todd, uh, an older brother figure, and I think of Pete, my cousin, who's a, a best friend, and Steve, another cousin, who's a best friend. And you know, these, these people in that time, they were just there. I couldn't get rid of them. I walked, to, I tried. I said the most offensive things to these people in that time, and they continually showed up. They saw the best in me, they kept on seeing the best in me, and they called it out. And somehow their love for me made me believe again. They met me in crisis and they were just there. And they just kept on showing up. And later, Amy, who is my best friend, my wife, if she's, she's seen the worst in me. You all see the best in me. I mean, I know it's not that great, but that's what you see. You see the bit of me uh, that I like to show you. My Sunday best. Some of you, if you see me in the week, you might see my Wednesday or my Thursday best. But you don't see the full me. I wouldn't dream of letting you see the full me. You wouldn't want to see it. Amy sees it all. She sees it all. And she's seen the worst, and she still loves me. That kind of friendship heals. That kind of friendship restores. In our context, that's in a marriage, but it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be. You don't need to be married to have that friendship. Hear me very clearly say that. But you need to have that kind of friendship. Doesn't For many people, and Amy isn't enough of a friend, this isn't on the notes, Amy isn't enough of a friend for her to be my only friend. 
You can't have one person. We have a, a whole group of friends, hopefully, uh, uh, different friends at different times, different seasons. We have to have that context of friendship, I believe, uh, for life to work, for life to make sense. And I think one of the most profound uh, breakdowns in our society and in the function of our society is manifested around loneliness and the fact that we've lost many of the institutions and the structures that created the framework for family and friendship. You know, think of how many pubs have been shut down in the last, I don't know, 20 years. Let's just choose a random number. I don't have a figure here. I don't have a stat. But you've just seen boarded up pubs. You don't need a stat. You know, the best pubs have just been a place, a context for friendship, haven't they? And you know what? If you're watching uh, this morning on the internet, God bless the internet for enabling a connection. I have friends in the States I'm able to keep in touch with over the internet, but you know what? It's not the same. They're sitting over the other side of a table, <laughs> bar, coffee bar, whatever, with somebody and just having a natter, developing friendship in that way. What the church is at its core is a network of friendships. It's a place in which not only are thick relationships made possible, they're demanded. They're essential. Because they are the essence of what the church is. Note what I'm saying. Not what the church should be. I'm not presenting friendship as an ideal that Christians should explore if they've had time after they've done their morning Bible study. I'm saying if you're a Christian, you do friendship. It's in the job description. John Tyson said, pastor in New York, he said this, a Christian community is a web of, and I love this phrase, that's why I put it on the screen, of stubbornly loyal relationships knotted together in a living network of persons. In a complex and challenging cultural setting who are committed to practicing the way of Jesus together for the renewal of the world. There is plenty to chew on there. There is a sermon series in that quote. But look at the first line. That's what we are. We are a web of stubbornly loyal relationships. You know, we are that because the Bible is a story of friendship. I don't know how you understand the Bible. I don't know if you read the Bible. I don't know if you grew up in the church and, you, and ever since you've stayed away. I'm telling you, if you don't understand the Bible, understand it in this way. It is a story of friendship. The Bible begins with a picture of friendship. There is Adam and Eve, this human friendship. There is, uh, But it's not just a horizontal friendship. There is this vertical friendship, God and humankind. And there is a friendship as well, I think, uh, between creation and creator, but also between humankind and creation. is perhaps not one of the reasons that we're in such an environmental crisis because we've lost sight of that. That we're actually called into covenantal friendship with creation. And again, that's another sermon for another time. But the whole story of the Bible, it's a setup, and the setup is about friendship. And there's a picture of nakedness. And, and, and a lack of shame. There's no need in Genesis 1 to see any shame because there's nothing wrong. But then sin enters the fray. And that, because of sin, Adam and Eve begin to understand that uh, they begin to feel the wrongness. 
And so their nakedness becomes a point of shame. They want to cover it because they know something's wrong now. And that beautiful intimacy with God and with creation is lost. And that friendship is strained. We experience shame as a result of that. And, and so there's a division between creation and creator, God and human, and between humankind and the rest of creation. We're no longer friends, we're enemies. Enemies with each other, enemies with God. The rest of the Bible is God's relentless attempt to draw us back into that beautiful friendship. And he expends every last drop of his energy. In fact, eventually he expends every last drop of his blood in Christ Jesus to recreate that friendship with us. In Christ Jesus, God bridges the divide. He overcomes our shame by taking our shame upon himself. Jesus comes and he, first thing he does is creates a community of friends. He calls them his disciples and he draws them alongside. And what they do is they share life. That's what they do. If you read the Gospels, if you're interested, if maybe you've not read them before, I encourage you to do it. I mean, Jesus sort of just hangs out with them and they sort of randomly go around the place and he just sort of instructs them on the way. Notice Jesus doesn't take them into a classroom. He takes them on an adventure. Friendship with Jesus on an adventure, following him. And you know these men and women that become his horde, cohort of disciples, they're so different. They can agree on basically nothing except one thing. And the one thing they agree on is that they're attracted to Jesus. And that attraction to Jesus, it overcomes all the other differences. And Jesus sets the whole thing up by saying, you're my friends. He says in John 15, 15. I don't call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. Everything I learned from my father I've made known to you. In the end, Jesus is abandoned by his friends. He is stripped naked, he is beaten, and he is killed. But his nakedness is so that we might be clothed. That that nakedness and shame of sin that we felt in our division from God might be made up for. That we might be declared not sinners but righteous in his sight. We might be declared to be in the right. That we can be friends again with God. And we are friends with God through Jesus. And because of this, the, the invitation that the gospel, the good news about Jesus is all about is about restored friendship. It's about restored friendship with God. And because it's about restored friendship with God, it's therefore about restored friendship with each other. Jesus becomes the ground in which and on which we can be friends with each other again. The church is, if you like, a family of friends. It is possible to be friends in your family. And no, again, I'm not saying the church should be a place where friends where we can make friends. I hope that's true, but it's far, I'm saying something far more than that. I'm not making, a, a, making up another ideal that we should aspire to. I'm saying this is who we are. So we need to become what we are already. We are friends with God, and we can be friends with each other because of that. The gospel of Jesus Christ is an invitation into friendship with God and friendship with one another. This kind of friendship enables us to thrive in exile. 
without this kind of relationship with God and with each other, we will flounder. We will struggle in exile. But what we see in Daniel's life and these three friends is that their connection to one another enables them to keep on going in impossible situations, in the same way that Bonhoeffer was given courage by Bethke. So we give each other courage. We encourage one another. Now, I want to land just with some practical application. Not, not, this is not another to-do list. The substance of the message is there. That's what I want you to hear. What I want you to hear is this. We thrive in exile because of our friendship with God and our friendship with each other. That's it. It's, it's what God has done. It's not what we have to do. This is gospel. We're friends with God. There's nothing you can do to establish a friendship with God. It's a free gift. And it's all been done. And I don't care where you're from. I don't care how you've shown up today. I don't care if you, 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 you believe in God or not. The offer's there. It's all work that's been completed. The free invitation. Nobody qualifies for it. This isn't for religious people. You know, it says in Romans, I'm reading through Romans at the moment, yeah, God justifies the ungodly. The gospel is that, that Jesus justifies, that is, he declares to be in the right with God, the ungodly. Not the godly. This isn't, religion is all about the, the justification, the declaring to be in the right of the godly people. Christianity is about the ungodly being justified. It's about sinners being brought into the family of God. That's the good news. Friendship with God for those who had enmity, an argument, disagreement with God. So this isn't another to-do list, but I do have some practical things that I just, as we as a community, step into thick relationships, thick friendships that we might pursue. The first of them, I just want to say we need to slow down Oh, God forbid if we come out of this pandemic and start roaring and raging our way through the world again. Like picking up all the guff that this, that's a technical term, guff that we laid down through the pandemic. Don't start filling up your blinking diary again with guff. Just have margin in your life, diarize margin. I had a beautiful moment with Anders. Anders, if you're at home watching this, I don't know if you are, but I just, I, I actually had just had the vaccine. I was feeling very, very sorry for myself. And I decided to walk the dog, I, stumbling down. Just fear, man flu, but times 10 it was. And, uh, and, I just, I, and, and I got a text message from Anders, and he said, hey, I'd love to just chat about something. And I said, you know what, I'm free now. I thought, you know, I've probably got five minutes in me, because I'm really struggling. An hour and a half later, it was about around that. I just had this most beautiful and rich time with Anders. I have no idea whether he enjoyed it. <laughs> Frankly, I don't care. 
I had a great time. The margin enabled us to make a connection that blessed me. It deeply enriched me because I slowed down. We need to slow down. If we're going to be the church, to, if we're going to be friends with each other, let alone a world that's looking for genuine friendship, how are we going to do that if we're as busy as everyone else? How are we going to be a prophetic witness to a world that is addicted to hurry if we're just as hurried as everyone else? Secondly, stop comparing. Oh, I mean, I try, I tell you this, I do try and get through sermons without harping on about social media. I just can't do it. There are so many gifts that social media have given us in terms of friendship. Like I said, I have friends in America that because of social media, FaceTime particularly, I'm able to keep in contact with iMessage or whatever else it is. I'm able to keep in contact with them through those social media. That's a profound blessing. But there is also a negative side, isn't there, about comparison, We can look at whether it's uh, streaming things, flicking through, looking at other people's perfect friendships, their perfect lives, but we can do this in our own lives. Amy and I did this. We moved to California and spent three and a half years there, and we spent probably the first two and a half years bemoaning the friends we'd left behind in London, wondering, when are we going to have a friend like X and Y? When are we going to have friends like this and that person? And after two and a half years, we realized we never would, but God had given us friends. He'd given us Doug and Angela. He'd given us uh, Todd and Lisa. He'd given us Greg and Terry. He'd given us this whole group of friends that were different and beautiful. And once we understood that they were never going to replace those other people, we were able to receive the gift of the friends he'd actually given us. He hadn't given us perfect friends because, by the way, no perfect friend exists. Every friend you make is a sinner. And let me just help you with that in the beginning. They will let you down. Don't be offended when they do. Just say, oh, roll your eyes and say, they're sinners. And so am I. That will help you. Don't fall in love with an ideal and then judge somebody else on the standard of that ideal that they could never attend to anyway. Bonhoeffer says, the person who loves their dream of community will destroy community. But the person who loves those around them will create community. How about we start thanking God for the friends we have? Let the dream of the perfect friendship die. And Bonhoeffer says, let's take that second half. The person who loves us around them will create community. How about we serve one another? Guys, these all begin with S. You can give me the round of applause at the end. They alliterate, serving one another. The person who loves those around them will create community. One of the marks of our exile is the church. One of the ways that exile has got into us is that it's reframed everything in our culture around consumption. We are a consumer society. That's how we navigate our way through the world. And we come to church with that same mindset. We can't switch it off when we get to Sunday morning. And so we think, was the sermon good? Was the preaching good? That's the same thing. Was the worship good? Was the coffee good? Did anyone welcome me? X, Y, Z, and so on and so forth. And I understand that, and it's not that there's no validity in that whatsoever. But Jesus didn't call us to be consumers. He called us to be disciples. And so one of the most basic things we need to learn to do if we want to have deep friendships is to be willing to forego our own preferences for the sake of the other. So rather than asking, who will be my friend? Might we begin to ask, to whom can I be a good friend? Who could I be friends with today? Who could I serve? And if we do that, we might find friendships emerging in the most unlikely places. I could tell a story of 
I will tell a story of a close friend of mine, a man called Lachlan. I won't tell it. <laughs> Who I love very much. And, you know, I was the pastor of uh, a community of students in, in London, Lachlan, one day. Showed up at the back wearing a three piece suit. <laughs> that wasn't what anyone else wore. You know, everyone else is in their skinny jeans and whatever else. And Lachlan gave me a three piece suit. I just saw him. And I just thought, wow, he's interesting. And we just, we just started hanging out. and shared his life with me, and he was struggling at the time. I don't think he'd mind me saying, we just had coffee. And I guess initially it began as a pastoral thing. I was helping him, but you know, he's just become a, just a beautiful friend. Being surprising, but he's just wonderful. He's wonderful. We need to, fourthly, Step into vulnerability. <laughs> to be this kind of friend with each other, we need to risk being hurt. We need to risk vulnerability. Rennie Brown, <laughs> prophet of our secular age, wonderful, wonderful teacher. She says that the definition of vulnerability is uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. She says, are you willing to show up and be seen? When, we can't, when you can't control the outcome. True friendship actually is, is something about releasing the outcome, not being completely assured that you will be safe. That doesn't mean throwing your pearls before pigs. It doesn't mean exposing your deepest secrets to somebody who's not safe. We actually do need to have discernment. We need to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. We need friendship. We need to develop trust. That happens in time and over time. So I'm not saying uh, that we need to throw discernment out the window if we're trying to establish relationship. But there will always come a point of risk. You cannot take the, the risk out of friendship. Fifthly, we need to seek healing. We have all been hurt. In friendship, we've all got scars, we've all been damaged and wounded, and we've hurt others. And so we need to find places where we can be healed. I pray that this church community is a place where we can find healing. I am not advertising perfect friendship here. If I'm your friend, I will let you down. I guarantee it. But can we be a place where healing is possible? If we're honest and we're all seeking Jesus, who is a friend to sinners... I believe that is possible. And finally, and most importantly, we need to say yes to Jesus' offer of friendship. I land with this. Daniel chapter 3, the beautiful picture. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up quickly. He said to his counselors, was it not three men that we threw bound into the fire? They answered the king, true, O king. He replied, but I see four men unbound, walking in the middle of the fire, and they're not hurt. And the fourth has the appearance of a god. You know, something happens 
in the midst of friendship, in the midst of the church, in the midst of this covenantal relationship, these stubbornly loyal, knotted community of persons that the church is, Jesus in the midst of it just comes alongside. And he walks among us like he did for these followers of God, these Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The presence of God, Jesus himself, walks in the fire in those moments. It reminds me of Psalm 133, how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. It's like the precious oil that's poured down on the head, down on the beard, down the beard of Aaron, down on the collar of his robe. It's like the dew of Hermon falling on the Mount of Zion, for there the Lord commands the blessing. There, in the friendship, the Lord commands the blessing, and the blessing is life forevermore, eternal life. Jesus shows up in the midst of friendship. And it's as we walk with each other in the fire of exile that we discover friendship with Jesus. Let's pray.